Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman and this week I spoke with James Lebrecht, a Berkeley Sound artist, which is based in the Zance Media Center here in the Bay Area. Berkeley Sound Artist was formed in 1996 and has established itself as the go-to audio house for documentary and independent filmmakers. Now for anyone who's interested in running their own post-production studio or working on documentary film sound, you will really enjoy James's perspective and expertise on these topics. I hope you enjoy. So your company is Berkeley Sound Artist, but was there a before the Berkeley Sound Artist? Was it just Jim Lebrecht? What, how did, how, what was the evolution of how you got to where we are today? Well, um, as Bill Cosby said, I started out as a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always been kind of interested in sound. My dad was one of these people that had a hi-fi and wired up the house so we could hear things in the kitchen. Oh, and, nice. And we record stuff off the radio. So, um, where, I, where was this? Where, where were you growing up? I grew up in Westchester County, just north of New York City. Okay. In a little village called Hartsdale. <laughs> and, uh, so I always kind of was interested in sound. Um, you know, I played with my dad's woolen sack, Real to Real. Um, I fell in with the drama clique in high school. Yeah. And so besides doing a little bit of acting, um, I started doing some sound effects work for the plays. You know, I went out and got the Elettra sound effects <laughs> yeah. records and oh edited with, uh, you know, my splicer and quarter inch. A quarter inch, yeah. And... Um, and and so that really kind of introduced me to everything. My big goal in life when I was a senior in high school was, you know, I, I really would love to go do audio for the Grateful Dead. Okay. Okay? <laughs> and so, and I'm looking through all these college catalogs and let's say UC San Diego, they have an acoustics major. Ah. Okay. That would be good. Yeah. And so I applied to UCSD and got rejected. And then I wrote them back and kind of said, uh, uh, you know, I use a wheelchair. I was I was born with spina bifida, yeah. And uh, and so I couldn't stay after school in the wintertime for extra help. Would you please let me in? Yeah. And so they said, well, okay, you'll be under probation. Oh, jeez. And and in fact, unbeknownst to me, I kind of figured this out about four or five years later. My physics teacher comes up to me one day in senior science and says, "You know, Jim, there's some things in this world that we're good at." And some things that we're not, and sometimes we shouldn't really try to do this things we're not good <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah. I said, well, well, thank you, Dr. Abbott. Appreciate that. And then, <laughs> yeah. so he gets to UCSD, and it's like, it's all math and physics. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm failing pre-calculus. Yeah. And, and so I go down to the drama department, and they're doing a big outdoor production of, uh, of Oedipus and, uh, we called it Burial Thieves. It was like Oedipus and another. Okay. Others. And... They had a huge sound set up with five tape decks, and it was a graduate thesis project. Yeah. It was outdoors at the Central Library at UCSD, and it was like, and so it was all flat, uh-huh. so my wheelchair wasn't an issue. Yeah. And I said, sure. Yeah. I'm ahead of the sound crew. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and from there, I just, I found a home. Yeah. And so would do uh, one or two sound designs every quarter. Okay. And hone my, my work and found my art. So when I graduated college, I was very fortunate that Paul Dixon was leaving the Berkeley Rep as their resident sound designer, and mm-hmm. I got uh, I got his job. Wow. When you came into that, what, how would you describe the place of sound and sound design and theater? 
how were they using it? Was it a very practical purpose? or You know, it really depended on what theater you were at. Mm. If you look at the old Globe in San Diego, you know, they had speakers behind the audience. They had speaker positions behind the audience. So when you t- want to talk about surround sound, first off, we've been doing surround sound in theater since yeah. eons ago. Yeah. You know, when you talk about Shakespeare's theaters where they had these uh, – what do we call them? Thunder, you know, thunder runs where you took a bowling ball and it ran down <laughs> these these things and went across the ceiling of the theater yeah. for thunder. You know, people have been using sound in that way theatrically for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. So at the Berkeley Rep, they had a very strong history of very good sound. Their original location was on College Avenue, and it. Had, Originally had been a house mm. that then got lifted up somewhere in the fifties yeah. to be a produce market. So when they took it over, um, the, the house was above all of this, but they didn't have a very high ceiling, mm. and so they did a lot with lighting, uh, costumes, and sound. And lighting meaning yeah, maybe a six pack <laughs> dimmer and a whole bunch of wall dimmers. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and so the sound, but you could do so much with sound. Yeah. And that sound isn't really limited by the amount of space you have. It's limited by your creativity and your resources. How were you doing playback then? What was what well, was your... Well, you... you. I remember on a number of our shows, we had four or five reel-to-reel tape decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Sony 252s, 250s. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got... When we got our techniques, that was a great day. <laughs> yeah, that was a big thing. Yeah, and then finally getting a four-track Tascam at one point. Okay. And so use this, I used the same booth to prepare my, my tracks as well as operate the show. Yeah. Um, and, you know, initially it was a very small booth. Yeah. You just had to rely on a... <coughs> you had to rely on um, a microphone over the stage to kind of hear how things were going. Yeah. So you need a director that is familiar with what sound can do. That's always really helpful. But it's also up to the designer to kind of mm. come in and say, well, let's really talk about this, this, and that. And I've certainly talked to directors years ago who looked at me like I was from Mars. Oh, yeah. When I said, you know, this this woman <laughs> gets electrocuted at the end of the film. What if we, like when that door buzzer, buzzer rings, why don't we put a little extra electrical snap in there? And and he just looked at me like, I, sure, fine, great. Yeah, sure. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but I've had some wonderful collaborations over the years with directors like Tony Taccone, uh, who now is the artistic director of the Berkeley Rap, where, you know, you they really know and understand the power of sound. Mm. So, and the thing about doing sound for live theater is that your work has got to be as clean and as present mm. as the actor's voices. Mm-hmm. There's no hiss. There's no distortion. Right. Unless they have a throat like mine today. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and so especially in the back in the day of uh, using reel-to-reel tape, you had to really kind of dial it in. <laughs> sure. You really had to try to make sure you weren't, um, you know, putting a lot of tape hiss in there. Yeah. Or, and, you know, an Orban parametric EQ. Yeah. Uh, right around 10K really helped that. Okay. <laughs> and what, what, I mean, how long, I mean, how long did you hang with the theater sound kind of work and until you started venturing off and doing other types of projects? Um, well, I, I was there as a designer from 
79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. Okay. But in the mid-80s, we'd come down to uh, Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley yeah. to record the, the score for um, Tennessee Williams' play. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's amazing how I can't remember anything. <laughs> Laura, blow out your candles. Uh, <laughs> it'll come to me in about okay. 10 hours, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> I didn't know this studio existed. Okay. And nor this building existed. Oh, yeah. And here's the home of Saul Zantz Film Center. Yeah. And Mr. Zantz... Um, you had two working stages and tons of editing rooms, yeah. and that was like really cool. And then shortly thereafter, I went to a, a a lecture kind of demonstration on how the sound for Amadeus was done. Oh wow! And there was Mark Berger, the mixer. There was Vivian Gilliam, the uh, mm. uh, who had been involved with some foley work or dialogue mm-hmm. editing. The bottom line of my takeaway was I'm doing all this stuff for theater. Mm-hmm. I am recording fully when we're doing all wilderness and we want to hear the sound of people getting the dishes ready in the next sure. room. Yeah. And I am doing voiceover work yeah. where as the guy is writing in his journal, you hear in, his, <laughs> in a little bit of reverb. Yeah. And then I thought I must go away. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so I had the chutzpah to go up afterwards and yeah. talk to Vivian who – is really such a well-loved and respected editor, mm-hmm. uh, just all-around kind of um, post-genius in the Bay Area. And I said, I do all this stuff for theater. Mm-hmm. Do you think we can talk? And she said, sure, yeah. come on up to ranch and yeah. with me and Karen, and we'll talk. And yeah. I just talked to her for a while, and I started trying to meet the people who were editors here. Yeah, And so... Um, getting them comps to shows. <laughs> yeah. And it came to a point where, you know, I realized you know, nonprofit theater can or does uh, <laughs> only pay so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that <laughs> the opportunities for better income and such could be in post-production yeah. for film. I also really kind of wanted to look at sound for video games and okay. a few other things. So yeah. uh, I left the rep and started freelancing and I, and I got on a film here mm-hmm. at the film center in 89 as an intern okay. at the age of 32. <laughs> what was it? Uh, it was Madhouse with uh, oh, okay. Christy Alley and John Larroquette. <laughs> so imagine this. Yeah. I I had spent the summer down at the Old Globe <laughs> yeah. working with Adrian <laughs> Hall on uh, Love's Labor's Lost, yeah. you know, in this beautiful Shakespearean place. And I come up and I'm interning on a film in which a cat throws up inside a car. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking... What have I done? What have I done? What yeah. have I done? <laughs> and, but uh, that and like, you know, cutting my finger open, trying to record some Foley. And yeah. it was like, so how, but I, I mean, stuck with yeah. it. I just stuck with yeah. it. What were some of those other projects that you were starting to make, you know, headway with getting more involved? Well, uh, through the film, Sarah, I, I was, I worked on uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. And mm-hmm. it was one of the two films that I cut on MAG. On thirty-five millimeter mag yeah. stock uh, sound effects, yeah, I, I did have to cut a reel of dialogue also on mag, which was one of the most horrific experiences <laughs> of my life. But I, there was a real visceral nature of working in thirty-five, mm-hmm. in that once you, your hands kind of knew where they were going, yeah. and you're starting to use the splicing block like it's an extension of the front of your forehead, yeah. 
man, it was it was great. Yeah. And uh, so I really I, I worked on a flatbed, and mm-hmm. it uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, the so that to me was one of the bigger things I did. Also, I. I did sound design on the skulls, mm. which was another uh, Rob Cohen film, mm-hmm. and came up with this idea of shadow sounds or shadow effects, where it was you know about the secret society at Yale, or mm-hmm. and so when one of the things is they go into their kind of uh, marble, you know, dungeon area, and they're all going to get uh, you know uh, uh, branded, yeah. and so when the sound of the of the barbecue pit type thing goes down, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's got the it's like you hear this big clunk, but within the clunk, the reverb is kind of this uh-huh. sound. So you can't hear it initiated because of the sound of the clunk down, but it was this thing I kind of designed that was just kind of like this evil kind of sizzling snake-like uh-huh. thing. And we use that a lot in uh, in various places in the yeah. in the film. And so it was... Uh, that was like really really cool. Nice. And how how would you describe just the Bay Area sound community around that time, late '80s, early '90s? Because it's that was a while ago, but in a way, there's still there's still some um, it, it's still there's a consistency, I guess. I think there's there's just been like this wonderful community of really big creative thinkers. Mm-hmm in audio that have been here for a number of years. Everything from John Meyer and Meyer Sound, Ray Dolby, um, to the people who have, were, were and still to this day work at Skywalker Sound mm-hmm. and with Francis over at Zoetra up in the Salt Sands Film Center. So the legacy of these people were, let's make it better, let's yeah. make it better, let's always make it better. Um, you have to create, you know, me, I, I grew up on the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And so, but the creativity in their music and the instruments and the technology involved, uh, to me, was always an inspiration of you don't have to know what it's going to sound like to try to make it sound like something. The, the, there's an artistic level to it. Mm-hmm. So often people think that sound is craft and not connecting it with the human being behind mm-hmm. it. And that I could choose 14 different dog barks and I, I'll make the right decision in the long run yeah. because I use my heart, I use my brains. Um, I wrote a book with my friend Dina mm-hmm. uh, Kay years ago called Sound of Music for the Theater, which we're just completing the fourth edition on. Yeah. And we had a couple of precepts in the book that just kind of came out of just writing this stuff down. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was that every sound has a function and every sound has an emotion. And if you understand these two things, you tend to make really good decisions. So I'm kind of going off on a tangent on your question. Yeah, yeah. But, but the point being that you don't have to be embarrassed to say that I'm an artist. My company is called Berkeley Sound Artists right. because I believe sound is an art. And I had all these wonderful people here that were doing the same thing in mm-hmm. regards to their work. And, you know, like, look at Tori's story, right? And mm-hmm. Gary Wrightstrom and everybody's work there. And you listen to the sounds that they, they created, uh, the incredible Foley work, mm-hmm. and it all sounds just right. Yeah, They didn't just pull plastic dinosaur off the yeah, shelf, yeah, sure. right? It's like 
but yet they just made that world come alive. So I mean, there's there's definitely a bar is set. I think an expectation, which comes from a long history, like you're saying, from Zootrope, even early films like um, you know the conversation Coppola did, which is we're gonna use sound as a little more than just you know door closes and and the practical sense. Well, the name I haven't mentioned yet is yeah. you know Walter Murch. Sure, and um, I'm I swear. <laughs> Don't laugh at me, but I remember many years ago when I was just a kid. Yeah, sure. Uh, there was I saw something like in Rolling Stone. I saw like a graffiti on a wall that said "Clapton is God," right? uh-huh. and I kind of in my mind I kind of crisscross out Clapton and <laughs> Merch is God, you know, in that his understanding about how sound functions in a film and 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 picture and being yeah. so facile in both worlds. Is is you know any chance one gets a chance to hear him talk, you hear something. Yeah, you'll learn so much. And uh, his work, really for me as a sound designer, mm-hmm. first of the conversation I actually kind of came to after Apocalypse. Okay, was it 1978? Probably, I don't know offhand. Yeah, yeah, it sounds about 78, right. 79. <laughs> Somewhere there. This will happen to you too, kids. <laughs> uh, is that? Uh, we went to the North Point and heard the Dolby Stereo okay. uh, print of uh, Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was me, Michael Leibert, who founded the Berkeley Rep, uh-huh. and Vera, who was our, uh, it was kind of the uh, the financial person there. Okay, and I don't know, the theater was freaking empty. You know, I climbed yeah. out of my wheelchair oh my gosh. and sat in the middle of the theater. Yeah, and I, as a sound designer, I was just blown away, yeah. and how I was hearing things and surrounding me and. And so we went back three days later to see the film again. Yeah. And, you know, there's this – at the attack on the on the river, mm. uh, there is uh, the first, like, bullet yeah. hits this – you have this metal clink that mm. hits the side of the yeah, boat. Yeah, sure. And there's a whoosh that precedes it. And when I had heard it the first time, I ducked. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Wow. And I still ducked. Yeah. And because they panned this whoosh yeah. from the rear of the room – from the up to the front of the screen, yeah, and it just flew right over your freaking head, yeah, and it was you know that was good, but it's it was also like in the music and the environments and the yeah in in the jungle, you know, when chef is out there, you know, hmm. you know, say never get off the boat, um, <laughs> that there was a combination of synthesized sounds with insect sounds, mm. so it's funny because. Uh, Anytime you get sound people, film people, video game, any people that are in this type of work, we all have these stories. And I find that it's for, I think it's for the reason that people remember those moments that really made an impact on their career and really gave them a kind of a template for this is, a, you know, one way to think about sound and, and then somehow gets ingrained in you and, and then you carry it with you the rest of your career, whether you want to or not. And I mean, for you, I can imagine being very involved with both Berkeley Theater and here in the East Bay and in the Bay Area, the sound must have, I don't know, was it daunting for you to think about all these <laughs> colleagues? Well, first of all, you, you, know, you live in the world, initially I lived in the world of theater, yeah. and I was doing some work at ACT occasionally. Yeah. And uh, but it's like, who knows my work? I mean, who's going to hear my work? You yeah, know? sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but, you know, it's just kind of... Yeah. Um, and sound has always been kind of this poor cousin in most fields. Yeah. And that it's unappreciated. I, we did a production of Night of the Iguana at Berkeley Rep. Mm-hmm. 
in which um, I had a nonstop rainforest ambience running from the moment the audience, the doors were up until the last patron left, wow. uh, courtesy of Andy Wiskus, who mm-hmm. had let me use a bunch of recordings to get mm-hmm. done down in Belize. And, and I didn't get one mention in any review, <laughs> and in which I thought, well... I guess I did my job right. Yeah. I mean, these people were surrounded by this. If we had a thunderstorm on stage, <laughs> I had somebody echoing the words, Fred, 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 <laughs> yeah. by, you know, turning on an early digital delay and yeah. then panning that ar- around the theater, you know? Yeah. And so it, it wasn't daunting to me in that I didn't feel like I was kind of elbowing my way into a position. Yeah. Um, I was just happy with the world I was in. And look, when I came up here, I was 22. Okay. And so, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of... I had hoped that having found work at the film center, Salzance Film Center, that mm-hmm. I could become the Gary Rydstrom, the mm-hmm. resident sound designer right. in this place. And it didn't happen that way. It wasn't that I wasn't asked to help out. And, uh, John Nutt, who was one of the supervisors, yep. and Doug Murray. Yeah. You know, I was on their cruise, cruise a lot and mm-hmm. sometimes for my sound design chops. Yeah. But um, about 10 years ago, Saul and his partners started closing up their businesses and the film center closed and um, building was eventually sold. But, um, but at that point, you'd already established Berkeley Sound Artist, right? Yeah, I started Berkeley Sound Artist in 96. And what was, what was your initial idea of, of what you wanted to do with this company? I, I thought that um, I could maybe do more work in multimedia, okay. which is what we were calling like it. CD-ROM, like CD-ROMs, right? CD-ROM like, games, yeah, absolutely. CD, yeah. <laughs> and so, oh, and I thought, well, there's a way to make some good money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my goodness. I've never been the best at making big profits, but I've always had a pretty good time. But here's the thing, you're still here, and to be honest, there aren't many people that I think have been able to open their doors and do sound design, editing, you know, all this type of work, and I don't know, I mean, maybe it's just a point that you've stuck with it and you've been a big resource to the Bay Area, I think. That's my two cents. I don't know, you tell me. Well, that's, (laughs) I mean, it's nice. I mean, I talk about being a business person, it's like, you know, I started this so I could kind of have some control over my my destiny. Yeah. And that I could kind of choose what I wanted to do. But more importantly, um, and I don't necessarily want to admit this, but mm. I do have a disability. I'm, mm. I've been holding my own for years. You know, I don't have a reputation as being the sound is the wheelchair Sound sound designer. Uh-huh. I have this reputation of being a really wonderful mixer and sound designer. Yeah. And oh, by the way, Jimmy's is a wheelchair to get around, yeah. right? But that I also wanted to make sure that if the the rigor of the time was twelve, fourteen hour days, and you just gotta do this, that you know, I was questioning whether in the long run it was gonna, I was gonna be able to keep going. Yeah. And that if I kind of brought in my own work and hired people and that I could a little control a little bit of the workload. Mm. And if my disabled body was giving me one of those mornings where things were going to be really tough, I wasn't going to fire myself. Yeah, sure. In the long run, those number of mo- mornings yeah. have been maybe one or two over the last 20 years. Yeah. And <laughs> that I also could probably have a little more confidence that, you know, like anybody, yeah. dis- disabled or not, 
that if you know you can't make it into work one day that you're not going to get fired for yeah, it. yeah yeah but you live i think that there's been a lot of there's a lot of stigma around disability mm. that i grew up with things yeah. are so much better now they're not perfect yeah but i think i was scared yeah and so so it kind of worked to my advantage in the long run, mm-hmm. and here I am, be Mr. Pollyanna, but <laughs> but that I uh, um, I got to um, I got to work on documentaries a lot. There's a wonderful documentary community in the Bay Area. Oh yeah. my God, it's probably the best. Yeah, and that a lot of those people were working in this building. When Saul built the building, he actually invited a lot of independent filmmakers to come and rent rooms. Yeah. And for years and years and years, it was dirt cheap. Yeah. So there's this great community of people in the hallways yeah, yeah, yeah. talking, can you come into my room and look yeah, at this? Yeah. And, and it was really great. And so I was working, my, kind of my first person that I hired for editing to work with me is Patty Tauscher. And mm. she had gone to Cuba and came back and said, you know, there's this guy who was making this documentary down there. And, mm. you know, we should do the sound on his film. And, and it wound up... Um, being Stephen Olson, and wow. um, and it just kind of started going that for so many sound houses, documentaries are fill in work, mm-hmm. or it's like okay, well we usually do features, but right. I guess we can do this. <laughs> and for us, documentaries um, are really what we do the most often, and mm-hmm. that I believe that we're the really one of the best at. Yeah, and um, and it's a community that you know people don't usually make documentaries. You know about uh, how wonderful Monsanto is, sure. Or you know how it's uh, so much of it is, it is around social justice, yeah. Or a view into a world that wouldn't necessarily be seen, but still enriches our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be part of that team of people and really applying the aesthetics, right, and the artistic sensibility to these projects. Uh, and that we're people that really care about their projects, uh, I think it is a valuable uh, resource for the community. And so, you know, you one of the successes in, in business is find your niche. Yeah. I think we really did find our niche. How do you manage just the documentary world? Is it like they can have really long production timelines? And nowadays with obviously crowdfunding, you have Kickstarter and, and some other resources to start getting funds but how did you how did you balance the limited resources that they had and like your interest to like really give them everything they needed how, how does that play out it's a well it's a really excellent question you can go out of business by being really really firm <laughs> yeah on these are the rates i have set and i am so sorry yeah you know and i think you know it's like why does Macy's have sales? Yeah. You know, well, they got some <laughs> merchandise to move. Sure. You know, or, the, you know, or it's a lost leader. Yeah. Come in for the toaster and leave with a mink stole. Yeah. Um, and so you have to find that balance between what your overhead is, who's working with you, mm-hmm. try to keep the shop working. Um, and everybody has to have a sliding scale in this world. Yeah. Um, and... But I was running myself out of business by cutting deals that were really unsustainable for my business. Yeah. I kind of like it when people like me, you know. Yeah. What, what better way? Yeah. Say, yeah, I'll do, uh, I'll do that for half my rate. Yeah, sure. Well, it, 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 all, it sounds great. You know, like when you have that meeting with the, the filmmaker and everyone's really excited. 
and then you know a month into the project and you're putting those long hours in and no one's enjoying the process because it's just a lot of work to get these films into a good place and well what i promise filmmakers is that i won't take a job yeah um that i don't feel good about the money okay and i nothing worse than having to kind of slog through something yeah and that I won't do that to them, but little on myself. Yeah, sure. Or anybody working with yeah. me. And so, so you, you know, an hour and a half documentary, you can do that for 20 grand. How, you could do yeah. that for 10 grand or eight or nine. How much time are you spending on it, even an hour and 20 doc? You know, it all, it all depends. Yeah. Because some things are very, very complex where, yeah. first off, you know, if you're mixing a lot of dialogue and kind of production B-roll sound right. and music. Yeah. Um, you know, once you get into three or four elements at a time, yeah. your mix is going to go slower <laughs> through that section there, right? Yeah. Whereas if you've got some really excellently recorded interviews and music is covering a lot of things and that's been well recorded, things can move quickly. Yeah. So my process with filmmakers is when – we start talking, they send me a, a cut to look at, and hopefully it's a fine cut, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, I can kind of – I do a pretty good job of estimating yeah. what it's going to take. Okay. That it's going to need maybe 12 minutes a day of screen – 12 minutes of screen time per day for dialogue editing. Yeah. I think I need to bring uh, a senior sound editor on for a week, yeah. maybe the junior sound editor on for sure. a few days just to kind of do some of the easier things. Sure. Uh, I often hire Dan Olmsted, who's a mm-hmm. well-loved mixer out of the film center, uh, to do dialogue pre-mixing. Okay. Um, and and then I'll wind up doing the final with the client there. Um, I kind of add up all these hours and what I think it's going to take. Mm-hmm. I come up with a figure. And then um, I try to find out what ballpark they're thinking about. Sure before I get too deep into it. Right. It takes a while to come up with a budget and really think about these things. And uh, and enough times that I've earlier in my career where it's like, oh no, we only have 3,000 when I'm like yeah. up at 10. Yeah. You know, for a while there was some book or <laughs> something like that that were telling people, yeah. you should be able to get a good sound mix for $3,000. Uh, and it's kind of like, who said that? You know? <laughs> so People are coming in the front door thinking that they can get a Hollywood grade job you know for their poorly recorded production tracks or, right and that's a difficult story or difficult conversation to have with somebody so what you try to do is you kind of say look there's a couple of ways to do your film and this you know the the pbs i'm going to sundance finish mm-hmm. is going to be this yeah the quick and dirty so you can submit something yep. and maybe get more money later yeah is this yeah the what your film really needs you know, sometimes it's it's really okay. It's not cheating to embrace kind of a rawness of a film. Sometimes that's the virtue of a film, yeah. where it does look like, you know, here's the story of my group, my my music group, and this audio kind of sucked. Well, we'll make, you know, we'll make it better, but that you don't have to smooth out and burnish all the rough yeah. edges, and it adds to the legitimacy of this audio as being part of a document, right? Um, and so I always feel like my job isn't to smooth out all the rough edges. It's to make your film effortless to listen to. Yeah. So whether it means making things more intelligible in dialogue, 
Um, what and I, and I think that you know before we started rolling, you had mentioned the waiting room to me. Oh yeah, and which hey, is Peter Nix, right, director? Yeah, great documentary mm-hmm. and fraught with so much going on in audio because it's about the waiting room in the ER at Highland Hospital, which is the community hospital in Alameda County where yeah. we live. They got great access. Um, and um, the production audio at times was difficult in that um, there were some technical issues early on where the audio going to the recorders sounded highly compressed. Mm-hmm. Um and just it's a very noisy environment. Yeah. How do you pick voices out of voices? Yeah. Well, they did a pretty good job of miking, but still it was a challenge. And so we spent a lot more time on the mix than I normally would, at least in one or two scenes, completely going back to ground zero with the original raw recordings. And how do I make this sound better? How do I make this sound yeah. better? Eventually getting there. And a number of months afterwards, there's a wonderful screening at the Grand Lake Theater. Yeah, I was there. And we're listening to maybe on Blu-ray or whatever. Yeah. But first off, you know, it's really nice. You go to a movie theater and it sounds really good. A full audience, a few hundred people, yeah. But for me, I never really had this vivid for me before was that I thought the virtue of the mix was that you always knew what you were supposed to be listening to. Mm. In a cacophony of a waiting room with all the stuff going on and uh, and that you're going to different locations and doing things – if you can lead your audience and help them know where where they need to listen, mm-hmm. when you provide them clues that maybe you'll, you'll start hearing that fade out just before something happens, just letting them know it subconsciously or, or well, subconsciously yeah. or not, <laughs> you're being clued into something's changing. Yeah, and I think it forces you just to pay a little bit more attention. Wow. And and I don't know if I can give you much more of a real description for that or explanation for that, yeah. but that for me, I, I was just really proud that I really thought, wow, you really you really know what you need to be listening for in this film. And there's always wonderful cheats that you do in documentaries and mm-hmm. most films where you think you're listening to production sound, but it wasn't. Yeah. You totally created this. Yeah. And that and that's one of the art of documentary I really love. Yeah. You know, Dollars to Donuts when you're looking at a historical documentary like The Rape of Europa being oh, one yeah. of the ones I we, we did where there's a lot of newsreel footage. Well, that newsreel footage has got the sound of the announcer saying, well, the Nazis have gone into <laughs> Poland. And yeah. and so you can't use any of that. But yet you they love this, the visual of the tanks going by or the yeah. buildings falling over, the flamethrowers, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. you know, incinerating Poland. And so you have to create all those sounds. And but you so you have to find the right sounds. You got to mix them right. You also have to distress the sounds. Mm. So, which is kind of a turn I, I learned from the costume world of theater. You know, they would make clothing look older by distressing it, yeah. fraying some things yep. here and there. And so, you roll off some low end and some high end. Yeah, and maybe you compress a little bit to make it sound more like it's kind of out of a sixteen millimeter projector. Sure. And when you can cheat that stuff. Even though you've got a beautiful metal clank on the ground that has all this high end, get rid of it all. Yeah. So it sounds like some poor guy out there with a flat jacket on is recorded at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I love a good cheat. <laughs> how would you describe your work process and flow and how, how you make your work happen with today's technology? You're not cutting tape anymore. You're in a digital world. And, and are you finding that the, I guess, the approach that you had early on is is still what you use today, or is it is it gradually 
change with technology. I think it's really important to always learn things. Yeah. And I, I think that that, you know, if you're, if you stop learning things in life, uh, you're in trouble. Yeah. And so I try to learn or observe. Um, and so recently Mark Berger, uh, uh, mixed a film that we prepped mm-hmm. and I sat with him uh, kind of as his right hand on the mix he was working in my room for the first time on a console he wasn't familiar with mm-hmm. and and so um, but being there and, and having to pay attention the whole time yeah I could see how he works yeah and Mark is from you know, Mark has been doing this for many many years many many more years than I am mm-hmm. So to be able to sit with him and see how he works and how he works through his tracks and everything was really good for me to see mm. and to observe and kind of take a few notes on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I remember when I first uh, was working in digital and stuff for a couple of years, and then uh, I had to, I went back and did a play, and it was still on reel-to-reel. Yeah. I was rocking the reels, and, and I wanted to see the waveforms. Uh-huh. On the back of the tape, <laughs> I was like, "Oops!" <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's funny. Cause the, yeah, people, I mean, people people with technology, there's like the tr- tried and true way that people will be like, "I like this version of whatever software, or this hardware works for me. This is my sound. This is what works." And then that's fine. Like you can stick in that world. But I think at a certain point, you start realizing, "Oh, there's actually." There's new tools out there that maybe I should think about and maybe make sense. There's a new noise reduction or, you know, whatever. And, and it's not, I, don't, I don't think it's about, you know, surrounding yourself with toys or things that are distractions. But I think you can surround yourself with things that work. I, I think it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. You know, if you're a freelance dialogue editor and you're just editing dialogue, you know, you could be happy delivering tracks out of a sonic yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which used to be the dialogue editing system here at the film center. Uh, I mean, virtually everybody's working in Pro Tools. Yeah, and I think that you don't necessarily need to upgrade if you're doing really, really basic things. Yeah. But for us, where we are doing sound design and we're finishing mixes here, having access to um, a software version that is. Uh, it, that is universally used by other facilities. Sure, is kind of important, um, but really, I think it, for me, it also kind of comes down to plugins. Mm. That, um, you, I mean, you're mainly all in the box, pretty much here. I work all in the box, yeah. and so uh, for me, uh, I think the biggest investment in software has been my uh, Waves Mercury okay package, and I've got it on two systems, yeah. and. Certainly there's things in there we don't use, but there are things that we use every day and that occasionally there'll be a new plug-in that's part of the package that really, 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 really helps. It's like when low air came in, it was like, that's a great, (laughs) really add in some little basa profundo to the mixes. (laughs) And and I I had the restoration package from Waves, but now I use use RX-4. Yeah, almost exclusively yep. now, and the and the new version, the advanced version. There's parts of that that I just haven't had time to really dig into yet, sure. like EQ matching and such. Okay. But anything that'll kind of make the job go faster and and do really good. Yeah, but I think for me as a part of our job is simply trying to clean up dialogue for you know in documentaries that spectral repair mm. in in RX. It's pretty amazing, yeah. 
You know, I said, yeah, you want me to get rid of that microwave beep? Yeah, but how are you going to do that? Yeah. Let me show you. I mean, this is like futuristic type of, I mean, the type of cleanup work you can do with that. It's pretty amazing. It truly is. And yeah. I, I'm finishing up something yesterday, and, you know, there's kind of a high, you know, snap in something. Yeah. And it's like, well, that could be this guy hitting his finger there, but I don't know. It's a little distracting. Let me see what I can do. And I get rid of it, and it's like it, it was never there. Yeah, you just penciled out. Uh, well, I went into spectral repair yeah. and just I found it and knocked it down and <laughs> put it back in. It's like, you know, what click? Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a mouth smack or anything. Yeah, just, sure. Maybe somebody, you know, he hit a drumstick or something. But it was – so those kinds of things, uh, you know, are the real big reasons to stay current and yeah. uh, and keep up on things. And, um, and plus you learn certain tricks with some of your – your plugins and yeah. there's times where getting rid of the distortion is really difficult and not even declipper from rx will quite do it mm-hmm. but i learned years ago that if i took the waves uh the d crackle mm. plugin and just push both sliders all the way to the top uh-huh. that sometimes it magically <laughs> softened out yeah. a lot of distortion yeah. and also that that worked really well sometimes for some lav noise Oh, interesting. So, so, some some rustle. Some rustle. Yeah. Sometimes it really knocked it down. It's like, I don't know. There's no setting that says use this for that, but it works. And it works, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and for me, even early on, you know, here's the thing I really love about what I do, mm-hmm. or one of the things yeah. I like and that with technology is that my first sampler sampler was an Emacs. Mm. Emu's Emacs, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and it took a while to kind of learn it. But for theater, it was really good because – certain spot effects like doorbells and other things you could really do quickly. And I remember the day in which I was loading up something and bringing it in and kind of laid it out over the keyboard, and I didn't have to look at the menu for every single button. Yeah. But I was just going bing, 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 ready to go. Yeah. And I kind of paused it. Wow, I was that's cool. Yeah. And so you find that as you're working. I have a C24, <laughs> uh, Digizign yeah. C24, console and it's a perfect size control service for my room yeah. uh 24 faders and it's like when i get the opportunity to go to skywalker to do a couple of final day mixing let's yep. say that's what i want yeah uh, i could get an icon i could get a dfc i could get anything i wanted basically up there yeah this is what i want yeah you know Gets because you i know yeah. how to use it yeah and i knew how i know how to use it quickly yeah. and i don't find an advantage so there's no advantage over my not having familiarity, which is going to slow me down. So I've always thought about computers as a hammer, (laughs) basically. Uh All it is in the long run is a hammer, you know, and a good carpenter will know how to bang in a nail really, really well, no matter what they have in their hands. And the same thing with all this technology is that, you know, get it to be effortless to the extent that you're not constantly thinking about what you have to do so you can open your mind up for... Mm. Um, the creativity you need to do. Yeah, I uh, I sometimes sigh when I work, <laughs> and I sometimes you know you'll come across a section and you kind of go, oh, that's gonna be a lot of work. Yeah, you, you know the reality of that. Yeah, really, I, yeah, I see the tracks and I hear yeah. what I'm going, and so and and usually the first time I'm with a client and I sigh and say, by the way, I stop myself. I sigh a lot, mm. and and I just want you to know that it doesn't mean that I'm not happy to be here. I am. <laughs> But that if I try to filter myself out mm. for not expressing how I feel, mm-hmm. 
then it's going to affect my artistry. Mm. It's going to affect my ability just to kind of really be as present as I possibly can be. And that, but to not say something might mm. make them feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. or might make them think that I'm not happy to be there. Sure. When I am, it's just, yeah. you know, I've been in therapy for 25, 30 years. <laughs> I know how I feel. And <laughs> I'm confident enough to say, you know, I'm going to sigh a few times. And yes, it will be like, holy moly, look at what I have ahead of me. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I'm not doing exactly what I want to be doing right now. Mm. You know, here's here's an example of, you don't know what's going to come down the pike later in your life. I've uh, Dan and I have done work for Nicole Hahn for a number of years. Mm-hmm. She lived in the Bay Area for a long time, did a wonderful documentary about the Luna Chicks, were the, uh-huh. the bike team for Cliff Bar. Okay. And she started doing promo videos for Edun, which is a fashion line started by Bono from U2's wife. Yeah. And we did some of the mixes on that for her. Yeah. Um, and then she got tapped to produce some promo videos for the new U2 album, uh-huh. Songs of Innocence. And so she called me and said, would you do the mixes on these? Oh, wow. And so it's been really great. They're like 90 to 120 second pieces yeah. and shot very kind of verite style. Mm-hmm. She's been with them for about the last year of filming, you know, publicity shoots yeah. and, and rehearsals and yep. such. And um, so I... I've been, you know, deciding, well, maybe a little bit more Bono in the mix. <laughs> but it's been, that's been really exciting. That's a lot of fun to work yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, first, first of all, artistically, they're really, really good. She does great work. And secondly, it's like, okay, all this year of years of kind of feeling like working in a little bit of obscurity, mm. you know, when I'm ready and whether it's appropriate to really publicize that we've been doing the mixes for these short documentary promo pieces. Mm. I think that's going to help business. I yeah. think it's going to say it's going to help legitimize who we are out there. Yeah. And I know that everything I've kind of said to you in this interview about caring and thinking and taking initiative, I've thrown all of it into these things yeah. to go, what if we did this? What if we did that? Yeah. Uh, so that's been very, very cool. Honey, I'm going to be home late tonight because i got to get <laughs> Bono's vi- voice right just a little bit better. You know, right, dinner will be cold, but I'll be happy. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Mm. Well, for people that are interested, you know, even in the early stages, maybe not even out of college yet, what, what, what can you say about things to keep in mind when trying to make a name for yourself? Or, I mean, there's there's an element of you need to know how to do the work, but there's also this humanistic, you know, networking or just getting your name out there and being being ever ready to do whatever is needed. What what for you is do you think really has played off? Well, I'll tell you first what I what I kind of look for for people. Mm-hmm. We don't have a we don't have like a formal internship program, yeah. but um, every all the people that are currently working as editors with me started off as interns, mm. and uh, on one basic level, uh, folks need to know how to use Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be certified, but you got to know what you're doing. Uh, there's no time to really kind of train somebody about yeah. here's how you cut and paste. Mm-hmm. And they really need to know how to use Pro Tools in relationship to image mm-hmm. and syncing things up on video. I can teach you how to do that. And it won't take that long, sure. but it's an added advantage. So really knowing Pro Tools, I must say, is kind of like a bottom line. You okay. have that. But there's other things like creativity and showing up <laughs> um, and taking initiative. 
um, that are all really important. And I, the people that I really like are folks who are eager to learn something, yeah. who ask good questions, who, um, and I feel like are good with my clients mm. or our clients. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that they take care of them. Yeah. And, they, and that people care. You know, it's not about I'm sitting in front of this really cool control surface and I'm working on this really cool movie. It's that we are finishing the audio for Rick's film. Mm-hmm. We are finishing this film that Denise has taken 10 years of her life to do yeah, and has struggled with. Mm-hmm. That people realize the importance of what we're doing isn't about you know, where they're going to go drink that night, but that, although that's important. That is important, too. That, actually, <laughs> that's really important. But that, you know, they care about what's going on. And, and so, and then to answer your question a little bit further is, mm-hmm. yes, you need to, first off, do whatever you can. You know, I don't advocate people ever working for free, mm-hmm. but you also need to start finding your community and being part of it and building a, um, a, a reputation. And so if you have a chance, if you have an interest in composing, if you have an interest in editing or being a location recordist, mm-hmm. look on Craigslist, look in all these places and just go out and do it. Yeah. Uh, and that we're in a collaborative field. There's more than one person. You're not out there painting in your loft, you know, drinking Perrier. Yeah. You know, you're, you're working with other people. People will remember you if you're the kind of person that was a pleasure to work with, yeah. who was conscientious, showed up, took a shower once in a while. You know, we're all in there working long hours, yeah. and we all have big responsibilities here. And so we need to know that if, if things get tough, that somebody's going to be willing to give the extra mile mm. to get it done. So, and, you know, I'll remember people. I do remember people. Right. And people remember me. Yeah. So staying in contact with people, don't be smarmy about it. Mm. Like, hey, I was just thinking about you, Bob. Yeah, 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 Got yeah. any work? Hey. Yeah. But it's like um, maybe you saw a film that they worked on yeah. and just say, by the way, I was really happy to see your name in the credits. Yeah. It sounded really great. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's how you truly feel, yeah, people like me love hearing that that's kind of great. stuff. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, it, nothing's going to be given to you on a silver platter. Yeah. It platter. It's just. It's just. Yeah. It's not. So for me, it was really kind of getting to know people here where I wanted to work and contacting them and yeah. them getting to know me. And then one person gave me a shot, and I worked really, really, really hard. And to this day, I try not to be jaded about it all. Yeah. Um, my the alternative in my life, if I hadn't found this career, do you know what it, what it might be? could have been absolutely horrible. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you're looking at two different things here. Yeah. Let alone not having – let's say I didn't even have a disability. Yeah. What would I be doing? I mean, would I be doing something in which I have a creative outlet? Would I be doing something in which I get to – I haven't worn a necktie to work in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, at least two of us. Yeah, and yeah. that I really enjoy and I'm creating with people. Yeah. Um, what would I have wound up doing? I I, uh, I don't know. That's and, a funny thing because I, I, I feel the same way. Like – I don't really know what else there is. This is this is what this is what we wanted to do. So I mean, I maybe I could be working in social justice or something. <laughs> that's a strong interest of mine. But, yeah, 
but who knows? And then, you know, really not to like try to have the inspirational story of the year and Hallmark Hall of Fame or anything, but yeah. it's like having a disability, especially growing up. I'm 58. Yeah. And so growing up, it's like the expectations of folks with d- disabilities was horrific. Yeah. Like you're going to live with your parents until you, yeah. they die and then right. you go to a nursing home or yeah. something. But with the advances uh, of, of the disabled civil rights and independent living movement over the last 30 years or so, the opportunities are much greater. Yeah. But I, I kind of knew that if I didn't get my shit together, yeah. that m- my life could have been really horrible uh, and that it was a big motivator. It's like I have to succeed. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to get a job on a loading dock. Yeah. I'm not going to get a job at McDonald's. Yeah. And so I ha- – and also that kind of prejudice or stigma that that I talk about – I have to be better than somebody. Yeah. If it's up, if my father kind of said, you know, Jim, if it's between you or somebody else for the uh, for a job, and if you're equally talented, they're going to hire the guy that can walk. Uh, and it's like, well, you know, harsh? No. Reality? Yes. Yeah. And so I really held on to that, saying mm. that, you know, somebody may be able to help carry the cables to the truck better than I, but no one's going to... Nobody has the ability to care more than I do mm. if I actually care. Yeah, and right. and listen. It's on you, and and don't have a fat ego about it at yeah. all. And so it's. I feel like I have a fat ego when I tell you how wonderful I am at certain things, but I mean, <laughs> I think you understand what I'm trying I to say. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So I, I uh, one's life uh, uh, needs to be full of. You got to put food on the table. You yeah. got to stay healthy. You got to take care of your family, but one must enjoy themselves. And so that's great. I love that perspective. And I guess for people who are interested in finding out more about you guys, where should they go? What's, what's the best way to find out? There's a couple of places. I would say the, our website, which is a little bit long in the tooth, but not too bad (laughs) is, um, www.berkeleysoundartists with an S dot com. Okay. Um, um, I also, uh, I wrote an article for Documentary Magazine uh-huh. about a year ago about how to get the best sound for your documentary. Oh, nice. And so if you go to documentary, I think it's .org, yeah. uh, or search on my name, sure. Jim, Jim Labrette or James Labrette, you'll, you'll probably find that article, which I think is kind of cool. Okay, great. And on Twitter, I'm there occasionally, is, <laughs> uh, is Jim Labrecht, L-E-B-R-E-C-H-T. Nice. And... Uh, you know, the company's got a Facebook page. <laughs> of course we do. Yes, of course, course they do. <laughs> of course we do. Cool, Jim. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>